Welcome back to the second part of our special Best of Thanksgiving edition of Science Talk, the weekly Scientific American podcast. I'm Steve Mursky. In part two, we'll hear from Brian Wansink. He's the director of the Food and Brand Laboratory at Cornell University, where he's also a professor in the Applied Economics and Management Department. And he's the author of Mindless Eating, which is probably going on perhaps right now in your home. Why We Eat More Than We Think. I spoke to him at the Cornell store on the campus in Ithaca, New York, for a program that originally aired on June 20th, 2007. Hi, Dr. Wansink. How are you? It's great to be with you, Steve. Great to talk to you. So, uh, mindless eating. It it sounds kind of obvious, but what is mindless eating? One thing we find is that if you ask a typical person how many food-related decisions a day they end up making, most people will say, well, 30 or so. In reality, we find the typical person makes between 200 and 300 decisions a day about food. Because it's not whether you're going to eat Cheerios or Fruit Loops. It's whether you're going to have half a bowl, a full bowl, or a second bowl. It's whether you're going to add sugar, whether you're going to put a banana on it, whether you're going to add skim milk or whole milk, how much milk. And bam, before you even know it, you've made 20 decisions, you haven't even had a bite to eat. That's what mindless eating is, making these decisions but not even realizing you're being influenced by the things around you. Th- that number is just uh, <laughs> a big surprise. Is a lot of that number, I'm not going to eat that? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that if you have a candy dish in your desk, every time you look at that candy dish, you have to say, do I want that piece of candy or do I not want uh, it? I see. So and if you've got M&Ms, that could be 200 decisions <laughs> a day. Well, that's right. And the first 25 decisions might be no, 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 no. But decision number 26 might be maybe, and by the time you get to decision 30, it's, yep, I deserve it. (laughs) Now, your studies, we've covered a couple of your studies in the magazine and on the podcast. There was the the study about the the size and shape of drinking glasses and how that fools people (laughs) into thinking they've had a certain volume of, uh, of a liquid when they've had more. And uh, the other study I remember was the, the chicken wing, the Super Bowl party chicken wing study. Right. You want to talk about those briefly and, and how they're illustrative of, of the kind of work that you do in general? Well, one of the things we know is that people end up eating and pouring a whole lot more than they think they are simply based on the shape of a glass they're pouring into or the size of a bowl they're eating out of and pouring into. And uh, what ends up happening is if you're pouring into a big dish, for instance, I mean, six ounces of pasta on an eight-inch plate, it looks like a pretty good-sized portion, but six ounces of pasta on a 12-inch plate, I mean, it doesn't even look like an appetizer. So you keep adding food on. And what we know is that any time you serve yourself, you end up eating about 92% of anything you serve. So if you serve yourself more because of the size of a plate, hey, you're going to eat it. Uh, with, with glasses, what we found is that people have a tendency to pour more into short, wide glasses than they do tall, skinny glasses of the same volume. Partly what's going on is that, you know, we're used to judging things by looking at height and not by kind of moving our heads side to side. And so as a result, even professional bartenders will pour about 28% more alcohol into a short, wide tumbler than they will a tall, skinny highball glass that holds the same amount. And the, the chicken wing study? <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that happens is that we know that you eat with your eyes and not with your stomach. Our stomach can't count and has a terrible time telling us when it's full. So what we tend to do is we judge how much we're going to eat based on our eyes. But once the food's gone, yeah, we've got no idea what we just ate. And so in the Super Bowl study, what we ended up doing is bringing people in to watch the Super Bowl. And we either bust their tables or we didn't bust their tables. They're eating chicken wings. And uh, what we found is that people who had the tables bust ended up eating um, 
So the tables are cleared away and they don't see they the don't see, the yeah. bones that they've, uh, the leftovers of what they've eaten. Yeah, they can't count how many they've had and we find that they end up eating, um, it's about 32% more calories if you simply bust their plates. But when they leave, <laughs> they've eaten about seven you know, bones and later that night you ask them how many they've eaten, they end up thinking they've eaten about four or five. No idea. Why are we so stupid? One thing that goes on is food's always, in the United States, been a very secondary activity. You, you actually sit down to talk to people and you happen to eat. You meet with friends and you order something to eat. You watch TV and you eat. And so we're always, we always tend to do it in very distracting environments. The counting, the calibrating, the recalling how much we ate isn't a priority and it never even really registers. But even when it, it seemingly is a priority, in your book you talk about the, the Subway versus McDonald's yeah. study. So even there, where at Subway, all the nutritional information is readily available. Well, why don't you talk about the, the results of that? Yeah, well, I mean, that's one thing that we've done is that if you eat at some restaurants, they have these tremendous health halos that surround them. Um, you, know, you eat at a Subway, you think, man, you know, that Jared guy lost a bunch of weight. I'm going to lose a bunch of weight. In fact, everything here must be really healthy. But what we find is that when people end up leaving McDonald's, they end up eating on average about 800 calories of food. But if you ask them to estimate how much they ate, they guess that they ate about 750. You know, they're fairly accurate. People eating from Subway, for instance, alternatively, um, end up eating about 650 calories on average for a meal. They end up believing, however, they ate about 325. Wow. And that's because <laughs> there are notices in the... In the uh the shops that say that we have all these low-fat alternatives, but the people don't order those low-fat yeah, alternatives. Exactly. Yeah, we've, we've had people say, uh, well, you know, why'd you order this? They say, well, yeah, because I, I read where it has uh, six grams, six or seven grams of fat. And we're like, this is a 12-inch meatball sub with cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens is they, they don't read things that closely, and so the entire health halo from the entire store kind of blends onto everything they eat, whether it be the cheese, the mayonnaise, or the chips and cookies. So how do people become more aware of their eating habits? Well, it's not really clear that a lot of people want to become aware of their eating habits. Um, you know, people want to eat better and they might want to lose weight, but they don't want to say, then if you ask somebody to keep a food diary for a week as to what they ate, most people won't do it for more than a day. Most of us want to figure out a way we can eat less and eat better without, without painfully doing so. And one of the things that we find is the secret to mindless eating, to reversing mindless eating, isn't to be mindful when you eat, but it's instead just to re-engineer your environment, whether it be your home or where you work, so that you can mindlessly eat less rather than mindlessly eat more all the time. So switch to smaller plates? Is it as simple as that? Well, that can be one thing for some people, and for other people it can be moving a candy just six feet away or replacing it with a fruit bowl or instead of serving meals family style, essentially the stuff you don't want to overeat, like the pasta or the meat, after you serve yourself, put that back on the counter so you can have seconds or thirds, but you've got to get up and you've got to walk six feet to get it. It can be as simple as using the half plate rule. Uh, you can have anything you want to eat for lunch, but half of your plate has to be filled with fruit, vegetables, or salad. Using simple rules like this, just doing small, making small changes, two to three a month, we used to say, is uh, enough to get you back in the right course so that you can eat what you want without having to obsess about calories or without having to make a food diary and things like this.
Talk a little bit about the, the second half of your book. You talk about parental influences on food attitudes and, yeah. and related issues. What we do, I mean, we find is that no generation of children seems to have healthier eating habits than their parents did. We find that that's short of there being starvation and things like this. Um, what we tend to find is that parents have an incredible influence on in what, what their kids end up eating. They're the nutritional gatekeepers. And in fact, we find that the person who purchases and prepares most of the food in the household ends up influencing about 72% of all the eating decisions that their family makes. That can be for the better or it can be for the worse. It's for the better if they end up putting, um, buying lots of fresh fruit and put them on the middle shelf of the, of the refrigerator. It ends up being for the worse if they bake cookies or if they you know, buy potato chips by the dozens. Um, it ends up being for the better if they give their children a little snack pack to take in case they get hungry at school. It's for the worse if they just give them a wad of money and say, get hungry, buy whatever you want. Why do most diets fail? Most diets are deprivation diets. They're based on depriving ourselves of something. I mean, it could be carbohydrates. It could be pizza and <laughs> French fries. It could be you know, never eating dessert again. But anytime we take away something that we really, really like, eventually that's not sustainable. It's going to backfire. And it doesn't matter whether it's a food we love or whether it's affection or TV. Just taking anything away that people like is not a sustainable equilibrium in the long run so uh in fact all diets fail really isn't that the case yeah um, the vast majority seem to seem to backfire eventually or they might lead to immediate weight loss but then they get regained because what doesn't change there isn't a pattern that's changed it becomes a very short-term means to an end and that's why with, with mindless eating just making small changes in your environment that you can do for a lifetime and it being fairly easy. Um, now, how did you get so interested in this kind of work? Well, you know, I, I grew up in, in Iowa, which is a very sort of agricultural area, and I've always been interested in how you can get people to eat more fruits and vegetables since that's what we raised on the farm. <laughs> and so it just it's gone from how can I get people to make better choices to how can a person get himself to eat less of a food and not overindulge either by eating too frequently or eating too much when they do eat. So if you had to give, uh, you know, five quick tips for people who want to continue to eat mindlessly but better, what would you say? Well, it depends on what your problem is. We find there's five basic dietary danger traps. One's meal stuffing, and if meal stuffing is a problem, there's a bunch of things you could do, but one thing can be as simple as uh, uh, moving your plate, uh, moving serving bowls off the table. Another one ends up being... Um, snack grazing. And snack grazing ends up being a problem and the easiest and easier thing to do is to replace a candy dish with a fruit bowl or telling yourself um, you can have anything you want as a snack as long as you eat a piece of fruit beforehand. Another one of the dietary danger zones ends up being restaurant uh, indulging. If restaurant indulging is a problem, one thing you can end up doing um, to help minimize the problem is to use the rule of uh, two, which means you can order a side dish, you can have a piece of bread, you can have a drink, you can have dessert, but you can only have two of those. You can't have all four of them. Another one ends up being sort of party binging. If party binging ends up being a problem of yours, you can essentially use a technique where you just put no more than two items in your plate at any one time. You can fill your plate with those two items, but with only two items in your plate at any one time, you're not going to overindulge. The last one is the area of dashboard or desktop dining, 
where you end up eating while you're driving or eating while you're doing computers. And we, we end up finding that people, if they eat their computer, they underestimate the number of calories they eat, and they eat more than they do if they're eating with a friend yeah. even. You don't even notice that you've eaten, so you don't get the satisfaction? No, not at all. And so it ends up, you end up, you know, not really enjoying the experience, because who wants to work while they eat? Who wants to work for their lunch hour and ends up really backfiring? So anybody who's eating while you're listening to this, be, be mindful of the fact that you're actually eating in addition to listening. We are a culture of parallel processors and uh, multitaskers. And unfortunately, one of those tasks for many of us actually is eating all the time. Well, uh, bon appetit, Dr. Wansink. Thanks very much. <laughs> it's great to see you again. Thanks. There's lots of info on the behavior of eating at Brian Wansink's website, mindlesseating.org. Have a great Thanksgiving for Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.